Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. Let's uh, take a look at this epistle to the church of Pergamos. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this epistle uh, to the church of Pergamos, Lord, but you also say uh, to all the churches, he who has an ear. So we thank you for this epistle to Orange County Christian Fellowship. And Lord, we just pray that you would open our eyes and our minds and our hearts uh, to your word, Lord, that we might truly take these things, apply them to our lives, and walk in them. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Verse 12, it says, To the angel of the church in Pergamus write. What is Pergamus? Uh, Pergamus is a city. Uh, it's about 70 miles uh, east of um, the last church of, what is it, Ephesus? Yeah. And uh, this, is a, this church has a little bit different history uh, than Ephesus, and even Smyrna as well. Uh, the name of Pergamus actually is two root words in the Greek, uh, that when combined together, they mean uh, mixed or perverted marriage. Uh, per means mixed, objectionable, objectionable, perverted, and gamos means marriage. So you put the two together, pergamos, it literally means perverted marriage or mixed marriage. And so you say, wow, that's kind of an interesting thing to name a city. But nevertheless, that's what they do. And it's probably why uh, Jesus uh, specified this church when he was writing these seven epistles. Uh, because of the things that he's going to be addressing within the body of this epistle. Uh, it has to do with that very thing, about this, uh, this perverted or this objectionable, this mixed marriage. Uh, the city of Pergamos was the capital of Caesar worship in the day. Uh, it was a place where, you know, in the other churches we saw, there was, also, um, there was also worship that was demanded, and people were even dying for their faith because of their refusing to uh, worship the Caesars and uh, the country Rome and all that as deity, uh, Pergamus was actually the headquarters of that worship. It was the first city in which Rome established, and they, they put this thing, and you know, Caesar worship was like their like, main thing. They put that there. It's like, hey, we absolutely, and if you, if you don't uh, offer that little bit of incense uh, to the Caesar once a year, uh, they would persecute you greatly. Uh, it is also known as the birthplace of Zeus. So if you read your Greek mythology and things like that, uh, th they actually believed in this time and in this day that uh, the, the so-called god Zeus was born in this place, in Pergamos. And so they had this giant, this giant altar uh, for Zeus there. 
and it was like 100, I think it was 115 by 125 foot uh, altar to the god Zeus. And so, you know, when you see him, he says, you know, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. It's like, oh, yeah, I can imagine. Uh, Zeus uh, in the Greek mythology was the, you know, like, number one god. He was the most powerful of the gods. And so if Satan is going to, uh, you know, mock himself as something, it would certainly be the, you know, head honcho number one guy. Um, as we've talked before, this book, Revelation, it is a specific revelation. It's not revelations, plural, but it is a singular revelation. It is the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to each of these churches, he reveals a little bit different part of who he is, a part of his character. And what he, and, you know, based upon what's going on with this church, he's revealing a different aspect of who he is. And so he says, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. You know, like, huh, well, what is that? You know, it's kind of an interesting way, you know, if somebody, if I said, you know, you know, hi, you know, hello, church of OCCF, I am Brian, he who has the sharp two-edged sword, you'd be like, huh? You know, what, what? Within the book of Revelation, there are many um, analogies, there's many things uh, that are signified, they're put in, they're rendered into symbols, but those symbols are all found in scripture. Uh, if you turn to Hebrews chapter 4, uh, verse 12, you can actually see what he's talking about here. And in Hebrews 4, chapter 12, it says, For the word of God is living and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You're like, ah, oh, okay. So this word that is coming out of Christ's mouth there, he's saying he is the one who holds the word of God in his mouth. This word of God, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it can divide everything, even from soul and spirit, bone and marrow. You know, it can cut right in. It can pierce right into the deepest recesses of our hearts. And that is this word that, that Christ carries and that he holds. Uh, this, this word for uh, sword is called makaira uh, in the Greek. It is a, a small sacrificial knife. Uh, it's something that, you know, just be like one hand, uh, maybe up to six inches long. It'd be like a fillet knife, really, is what the closest thing to it would be. And it's for precision cuts. It's something like, you know, you want to be able to get in there. It's something that a butcher would use to get, like, just the, the perfect cut of meat. Okay, that's what, the, what this uh, knife is, what this makira is. But here in Revelation, it, you know, it's kind of putting you back to that, but they... The Lord Jesus Christ actually chooses a different word for this word sword. And it's very interesting. It's, um, it's Ramphaya. Ramphaya is basically a broadsword. Now you think of uh, you know, the word of God being you know, this you know, sharper than a two-edged sword, you know, piercing even to the deepest hearts. Any of you who maybe uh, have been reading the word sometimes and all of a sudden it's like the Lord will just like, you read the word and it just goes like, ah, oh my goodness. And it just like goes right to the heart. The word of God will often do that. It will be a tool that the Lord uses to convict the spirit, to convict the soul, to convict the heart and the mind. But it's not always used that way. The word of God is also used sometimes <laughs> like a broadsword. And the Lord Jesus Christ is, when, when he says, you know, I am he who has the two-edged sword in his mouth, it's talking about a broadsword. It's talking about a sword of war. And you're like, wow, okay. 
It's like this is an interesting way for the Lord to actually address a church, right? You'd think this is what he would be addressing to you know, non-believers, to people who are, you know, the people who are persecuting his church. But he is speaking to his church as the one who has the double-edged broadsword, the word of God that will act as a weapon of war. And you go like, whoa. You know, what exactly is that about? We'll get to that in just a second. Continue with me in verse 13. He says, I know your works and where you dwell. It's awesome that the Lord, he never forgets our works. The things we do for Christ, the things we do in the spirit, he will never forget. Sometimes they seem um, so mundane. Sometimes they seem so meaningless. Sometimes, you know, people don't hear about it and we don't get the thank yous. We don't get the pat on the back and things like that. But the Lord, if you've noticed, on each one of these churches, he said, I know your works. He goes, I know what you've done. To Smyrna before, remember what he said with Smyrna? He said, you know, you're small. You have a little strength. He goes, I, but I know your works. He says, I know your works. And he says it again uh, to Pergamos, to, the, to these Christians here. He says, I know your works. I know the things that you have done for me. I know where you have suffered for me. I know where you have persevered for me. He understands and it's very comforting to me to think, it's like, you know what? Even the things that I do, maybe, and, and I'm not sure about my motives. I'm not really sure uh, you know, why I did them. It's like, gosh, was that really for the Lord is it, or was it just for myself? You know, I don't even really know. But the Lord says, you know what? I know. He says, I know the things that you have done. He goes, I know how to discern between the wood, hay, and the stubble, and the gold, and the silver, and the precious stones. He says, I know your works. And he says, and where you dwell. He's talking about environment here. Right? There's lots of, uh, we, we find ourselves in different environments, in different situations in our Christian walk in our lives. And, you know, I got a new Voice of the Martyrs magazine. And you, know, you, you see, uh, it, it actually came with a whole bunch of prayer cards on this one. And this one has a bunch of prayer cards. And it has hostile, uh, non-hostile, like all these different things. And like most of them are hostile. And they're just like, and you just think, it's like, gosh, you know, would I consider the environment that I find myself hostile. I'm like, well, no. no we, we, like I said before, the United States, California specifically, doesn't even make the Voice of the Martyrs map. It literally got cut off and they didn't put it on the other side. It's like, it's not there. It's like, yeah, you guys don't need it. That's wrong, though. Because there are still people who are lost in this place. And, you know, the Lord knows our works and where we dwell. And he knows the materialism. He knows the, the worship of entertainment. He knows all of these things and how people will say, hey, yes, I'm a Christian. If you look at all the, the polls and things like that, you know, I think it's, like, it's something like from 85 to 95% of America says they are uh, born-again Christians. And you go like, really? Really? With the legislation that we're putting out, with our affront against Jesus Christ in our schools, with the attack on prayer, with the attack on newborn life, with the um, taking you know, life as a whole and devaluing it, you know, I just don't see it. I don't see it. And yet, you know, we, we live in this place, and everybody has already written it off. Oh, they've got the gospel. Everybody, there's churches on every corner, you know, in California, in Southern California especially. And, you know, it's not even a real work if you if you're, you know, have a church there. It's like, come on. But you know what? The Lord knows. I mean, what's the entertainment capital of the world? Hollywood. Where is the the great greatest majority of perversion and defilement for the world? Where does it come from? Hollywood. Hollywood. 
Southern California, right here. And you know what? The Lord knows where we live. He takes note of that. He understands it. And, you know, there's a lot of pressures. There's a lot of things. I mean, guys here, it's like just driving around, right, looking at the billboards. It's difficult to drive. Uh, you're watching TV. A commercial comes on. You're like, whoa. And you want to mute it, too, because of the things that are being said. You don't even want to hear it. And you're just like, oh, my goodness. I mean, there's a lot of attacks. There's a lot of affronts on our minds and who we are. Right, women, you look at all these things, and it's like, you know, there's just all these ads plastered up of how they, the world says you should look. And it's like there's this battle for our minds saying, it's like, no, you need to be this way, you need to be this way, you need to be this way. And if you're not, you know, you should be doing something. And it's driving people to anorexia and, uh, you know, making themselves, you know, binging and purging and things like that. Taking all these over-the-counter medications to try to, you know, reduce their metabolism. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. And like all of these things are, they're part of the tools of the enemy to try to keep us, to try to keep us and keep our eyes off of the Lord. And, but the, the Lord says, you know what? I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. You know, we talked about that, you know, in Pergamos, it's where, you know, this capital of Zeus and Caesar worship, you know, w- was situated. And, you know, I, I would not be surprised at all if, you know, Satan didn't have at least a, a summer home in Los Angeles, in Hollywood. You know, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's like, I don't know that he's there all the time, but it certainly wouldn't surprise me if L.A. happened to be the, the, the place where Satan spends a little bit of his time because that is, I mean, seriously, the defilement of the world, the greatest defilement of the world comes from Hollywood. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. But now look at this. He says, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith. Guys, even when we find ourselves here where Satan's throne is, when we find ourselves in environments that is trying to lull us to sleep, when we find ourselves in environments that's attacking our minds constantly, the thing that Jesus Christ is saying to this church, to Pergamos, he said that you did not deny my faith. You held fast to my name. And guys, we here at OCCF in Orange County, I mean, seriously, the OC. You go around the world, people know the OC. If you say, they say, you know, where are you from? You go to Germany, you go to France, you go to anywhere. You say, I'm from Orange County. And they'll say, Orange County, say the OC. They, oh, the OC. And all of a sudden you're like a celebrity because you, came from, you come from the OC. Right? There is an affront on our minds, and yet, you know what, guys? We have to hold on to the name of Jesus Christ. We need to hold fast to our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we cannot let go, and we cannot give in, ever. He says, even in the days which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. And you know what? In this country... In the OC, even in Hollywood, you know, I don't think you're going to find a lot of people. Maybe if you go out and start picketing at a, like a Muslim mosque of like maybe some of those like Al Qaeda mosques and everything, because there's some of those around here. And if you go out there and you start trying to evangelize them, you may get martyred for your faith. That could that could happen. But for the most part, we're not going to be martyred that way. But you know what? How many people? How many children's ministry and churches 
get raised up through church. They love the Lord. They, they go from you know, the, the children, the infant toddler to the children's ministry. Then they go into the junior high and high school and college ministry. And then they walk out the door and never come back. There are so many Christian faith martyrs in this country. There are so many people who are brought up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, and yet they turn away from their faith. They walk away. They don't hold fast to the name of Jesus Christ, and they are not faithful until the point of death because they are lulled to sleep with entertainment. They're lulled to sleep with the affront on the mind, and then all of a sudden, you know, all, all this pseudoscience that gets pumped into them from the time they're small children, you know, these whole things about... You know, just overemphasis on the environment and things like that. And you're talking about, you know, greenhouse gases, carbon monoxide, like destroying our planet and destroying the plants and things like that. I don't know if you guys know anything about plants, but do you know what they actually grow off of? Carbon monoxide. So actually the carbon monoxide is actually helping the plants. It gives them the carbon. If, if you actually take a greenhouse and you pump it full of carbon monoxide, those plants will grow faster and lusher and be stronger. Their byproduct, their waste is oxygen, just so you know. And yet what our kids are pumped full of, you watch Dora the Explorer, you watch Go Diego Go, you watch all of these things, and everything's about the environment, the environment, the environment, the environment, and then you know, the environment is it, it's, it's just a ploy. You know, it is absolutely necessary. We, as you know, sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, are called to take care of. We're, we're supposed to be stewards over our environment. That is absolutely true. But when we start saying, it's like, you know what, uh, save the whales, but you know, kill our babies. That's where it's like, you know what, there's something wrong with America. There's something wrong with our culture. There's something wrong with our society. And the affront on our minds and the affront of the, on the church when it's like when people have turned everything so backwards and people are like, oh, you know, why, why do we kill rats? Why do we kill those things? Like, well, they have diseases and things like that. My kids, they actually, you know, we, we have a lot of rats at our house and we have to trap them and things like that. And they'll actually watch sometimes the rat trap won't kill the rat. And so we'll have to drown it and everything. They're always wanting to watch. And it's like, you know, why do we do that? Do you know there's actually a religion you know, and it's, it's Eastern mysticism, Buddhism and things like that, Hinduism. They worship rats. They worship all of these animals. And, you know, these rats run rampant and they spread disease. And it's like they worship these animals at the expense of human life. And it doesn't make sense, does it? It makes no sense. And guys, in our country now, we are very systematically removing God from the minds of our children, from the minds of our youth, from the minds of our college age, and from the minds of the adults. Yeah, if you look at, you know, the, was it the silver dollar, the, the latest dollar, where they moved the In God We Trust to the outer side so you can't see it anymore? I forget which one. Which, which, do you guys, anybody know? The gold dollar? On the gold dollar, because, you know, on, on our money, on our currency, it also says In God We Trust. Well, what they did, they moved it off of the face of the money onto the edge. So it's, it's, it's almost gone. People, you, know, you won't notice it, and then the very, the very next one, it'll be gone. Guys, I, I don't know if you understand it. I don't know if you know it, but there is an attack against the Lord Jesus Christ. There is an attack against this church, and it's not violent. Not yet. There is an attack on the Word of God. People don't want it. If you, if you ever go to school, 
They say separation of church and state, separation of church and state. And yet, I remember when I was in school, you, know, you weren't allowed to bring a Bible to school, but they were allowed to uh, teach you transcendental meditation. Right? I, you know, in, in my weightlifting class, it was a required part of the class. But Coach Oach had to literally, everybody had to lay down on their backs, focus on a point in the ceiling, and like zone off into that point. He didn't even know what it was or why he was doing it, but it was required. You know, if you come as a Muslim, you are totally welcome. The teachers will teach segments of the Quran and all that kind of stuff. It's all great. But if you say, hey, can, I, you know, can we have a Christian club? No, you can't. As the valedictorian, you can't mention Jesus. Because you, you, you have to submit what you're going to say. And if you submit and you have on there like a prayer and you mention Jesus, they'll say, you can't say that. Either remove it or you can't be valedictorian. And you go, what? Guys, that's the environment we find ourselves. It is a political hostility. It's a social hostility to the things of Christ. Will you hold fast to the name of Jesus Christ? Will you be faithful to your God? Or will you allow Satan to lull you to sleep with the environment, with you know, the, the billboards and TV and music and things like that? Will you allow yourself to lose focus of who you are in Christ? Will you allow yourself to forget that you were bought with the blood of the Lamb? We are called. We are called to faithfulness with our Lord Jesus Christ. Where Satan dwells. Look with me in verse 14. He says, but I have a few things against you. So he gave them this commendation. Hey, you've been faithful. You've done all this stuff. Even when my, when my martyr, my faithful martyr uh, Antipas was there among you. He says, but, he says, I do have a few things against you. He says, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. What in this church, in the church of Pergamos, in the church of the perverted marriage, of the mixed marriage, what was the thing? You know, they, they dwell where Satan is. They held fast to his name. They were faithful even unto death like the Smyrnans. But... Unlike the Smyrnans, they have something wrong. There's something wrong in their midst. And what is it? Do you see it? It happens, it says it twice. In once in verse 14 and once in verse 15. It's the word doctrine. It's the word doctrine. Now wait a second, wait a second. That, that all of a sudden, like, it starts, things start clicking into place. When Jesus presented himself, he said, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. But it's not a little fillet knife that, that's going to be you know, convicting our spirit. These guys, the error that they have is false doctrine. And the word of God is also good for teaching, for rebuke, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. It comes, it's also the sword of the spirit. It is the weapon of the Christian. It is the offensive attack that we have. And he says, listen... He says, I have a few things against you. There are those uh, who hold the doctrine of Balaam. Anybody know what the doctrine of Balaam is? We're going we're gonna to go there. Turn with me. Uh, you can keep your, your finger here in Revelation, but turn to Numbers chapter 22. 
a lot happens in this, and it's important that we get this. So I'm actually going to read you a portion of the account of what happens, and I'm going to kind of flip through a couple areas and give you a little bit of commentary on exactly what this is, because I want you to understand what this doctrine is, because Jesus is literally saying that he is going to be coming and fighting against this church. He is literally going to be attacking this church with the broadsword of his word because of this doctrine. So it is important that we here this evening understand what this doctrine is. So it says in chapter 22 of Numbers, verse 21, So Balaam rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. So there was this king, uh, Balak. Uh, he was afraid of the, the Israelites. Uh, they were conquering everything in their path. He was terrified. So he gets this prophet, this prophet of God, and says, Hey, I want you to come. I'll give you lots of money. And, you know, come and curse these people. Balaam Praise to the Lord. The Lord says, don't you dare go. These are a blessed people. Don't go. And then he says, ah, sorry, I can't go. He sends the princes away. Balak gets upset, sends greater, nobler princes with more money, and basically says, hey, offer them whatever he wants. They go back. Uh, he offer, they, they say, hey, you know, he really wants you. We've got, look at all the money we got. He goes, uh, he already knows the answer of the Lord, but he said, you know, the Lord already told him, don't do it. This is a blessed people. But he says, hey, stay here. Let me see if the Lord will change his mind. And so he goes back and he starts praying to the Lord. The Lord's like, all right, if they call you, go ahead and go, but you don't say a word unless I tell you. So he gets up and he's like, guess what, guys? I can go. And that's where we come in in verse 21. So he saddles his donkey. Now listen to this. You'll find out very quickly that this was not God's will. Verse 22 Then God's anger was aroused because he went. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. Listen to that wording. And he was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. Now the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword. Remember the the illustration we're using right now. In his hand, and the donkey turned aside out of the way and went into the field. So Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back onto the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a a narrow path uh, between the vineyards with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed herself against the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right hand or to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam's anger was aroused, and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam, crazy as he is, said, and he answers the donkey. And, he said, and Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have abused me, I wish there were a sword in my hand now, for I would kill you. So the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden ever since I became yours to this day? Was I ever uh, disposed to do this to you? And he said, No. Then the Lord opens Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed his head and fell flat on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to stand against you because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside from me these three times 
If she had not turned aside from me, surely I would also have killed you by now and let her live. Whoa. This is a prophet of God. I don't want you guys to miss this. This is a prophet of God who the Lord actually speaks to and actually allows him to curse and allows him to bless. This is a prophet of God. And you just go like, whoa. Okay, we're doing a little Bible homework tonight. Second Peter 2.15. Balaam's way was perverse. This doctrine of Balaam that the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking to this church in Pergamos, he's talking about a perversity. Remember what Pergamos means, perverted marriage, right? It's a perverse way. And so he says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, it says, speaking of uh, these men who go the way of these false teachers who go the way of Balaam, it says, they have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor. Now listen to this who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. Right? In Numbers, we read the event. In Second Peter, we read the warning. God was there. It's like, you know, God told, number one, the word of the Lord came to uh, Balaam, and he said, don't do this. Do not go with these people because this is a blessed nation. I have blessed them. And then because of his greed, because of his desire, because of his lust for money, it's like, you know, he entertained them again. He never should have let them in the door. And now he's praying again. See, he's trying to, he's trying to, he's trying to move the hand of God. He's trying to, you know, get his way with God. And so his prayer is a perverted prayer. He's praying, like trying to get permission from God from something he already knows God has said no to. And so now he made God his adversary by his actions. He made God his adversary by the perversity in his own heart. And so now there is a warning. And God literally you know, was trying to restrain the madness. Notice what he calls it. The madness of the prophet. You know, and in Balaam's mind, he's probably saying, well, you know, the Lord told me, yes, go ahead and go. You know, he's trying to justify it in his mind, but God, like, he's literally, he's restraining the madness of the prophet by literally making a donkey speak. You know, and this, he's beating this donkey, and I mean, can you imagine this donkey turns around and says, dude, why are you hitting me? Haven't I been a good donkey, a favorable donkey all the time you've had me? Have I ever done this before? No, but I'd, and, 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 like, I like how it was just like a one-word answer, like, no. And it wasn't an exclamation like when he said, I'd kill you right now if I had the sword. That was an exclamation point. But when he answers the donkey who's making more sense than the mad prophet, you know, he's like, no. Yeah, I, I, can you imagine this conversation with it? I mean, this prophet with a donkey and the donkey's making more sense. And he's like, have I ever done this? Ever done? No. I mean, he, he had to like give the donkey that point. You know, this prophet was, he was mad. He was, he was in the madness of lust. Have you guys ever had something that you were just like, whether it be a car, whether it be just a pack of gum at the, when you're checking out a candy bar, <laughs> right? Where it's like, like the lust takes you and it's like, there's like a madness and it's like you want it and you can feel it right in your throat. Like you can just, you know, it like kind of like just gets that kind of tight tingly feeling almost. And it's like, you want it. And it's like, you feel it and your face kind of, you've never had that? Come on. <laughs> You've never been that hungry where it's like, you, wow, 
I want to go hang out with him more. But, <laughs> you know, it's like when, when that lust, when that desire, when that passion takes you, and it's like it almost drives you to a madness. And it's like if it's not restrained, then it's like you usually give in. If it's not restrained, you're usually like, ah, you know what, you know, I want it. It's like, you know, I really want a new guitar. I really want a new you know, amplifier. I really want a new car. I really want a new stereo. I really want the newest phone on the market. I really want the newest software. I really want the newest laptop or iPad or whatever. You'll fill in the blanks. And it's like there, there's like this, this excitement that goes, and it's like you almost become mad with it. And it's like I can't afford it. I know I can't afford it, yet I got to have it. I'll find out, how, you know, I'll put it on credit, I'll figure it out later. It doesn't matter that I can barely pay my bills right now. I'm going to buy this thing because I need it. And then you get it and you're just like, you, you know, it's kind of cool for, as you're trying to figure it out. And then once you figure it out, it's kind of like, huh. Or you have the candy bar and it's like, I could you sure use another one? You know, and it's like, but it's not enough. You know, Balaam was that way too. And it's like God was trying to restrain the madness. And see, that's the thing. When we are following after the, the doctrine of Balaam, when we are following after our lust, after greed and things like that, God will, number one, he'll speak a word to us, but then he'll also restrain us with more powerful exhortations, sometimes from donkeys. Um, but then there's also something that's very uh, sad in this. If we refuse to repent... Uh, turn to Numbers chapter 31, verse 8. I remember the first time I read through the Bible, this confused me. When I got to this part, I was literally just like, what? Wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Balaam was a prophet. Balaam was a prophet. What happened? And in uh, Numbers chapter 31, verse 8, it says... Uh, this is Israel after they came into Moab, conquering the land. It says they killed the kings of Midian. He says, with the rest of those who were killed, Evi, Rechem, Zer, Hur, Reba, the five kings of Midian. Sorry, it was Midian. Balaam, the son of Beor, they also killed. Notice what, the, what they kill him with, the sword. See, hear this repeating theme in his life? The angel of the Lord had his sword drawn. I will fight against you with the two-edged sword that is within my mouth. So I am the one who has the two-edged sword in my mouth. And Balaam, he went against the Lord. The Lord spoke to him, said, don't do it. He did it. He wanted to do it anyway. The lust in his flesh, there came a warning from a donkey. And then the Lord himself stood in his way. And then those of you who know the story about Balaam, uh, he ended up, uh, well, we'll see it right here. Uh, just turn to ver uh, verse 16 of that same chapter. This is um, Moses talking to the children of Israel, reminding them what happened. In verse 16, he said, Look, these women caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord. What did Balaam do? Well, you know, he, he went, he finally went with um, Balak's princes. He got there. And, you know, the Lord says, you don't dare say a word that I don't tell you. And so he built, he had Balaam do it, or Balak do it uh, three different times. He built seven altars to the Lord, put, you know, a bull and a lamb on him each, sacrificed him to the Lord. Balaam, you know, went off to the side, heard the Lord, the Lord gave him a blessing. And he pronounced a blessing over Israel. And Balak got all angry. He did it again, got even angrier, did it again. And he's like, your God has kept you from all the blessings that I was going to give you. And Balaam's like, what? What could I do? That's what he told me. And so he went away. But Balaam wasn't satisfied with that. He, in that moment, 
he, did, he was obedient. In that moment, he blessed Israel. He, he, he prophesied against Israel, and we know it was from the Lord because his prophecies actually come true. It's like, wow, okay, yeah, he prophesied. He was a man of God. Yeah, he was a man of God who was caught up in this thing. And so he goes home and he had time to think about all the riches and all the money and all of the things that he had. And so he writes a letter or corresponds or maybe he goes back to Midian and he goes to Balak the king and he says, I figured it out. He said, I know what you can do. He says, I cannot curse these people because they are God's people. And he has blessed them. He says, ah, but, but if you can get them to sin against their God, then God himself will curse them. He says, so this is what you're to do. He says, you're to take the prettiest girls of Midian and you're to send them to the men of Israel and you're to have them invite the men of Israel to participate in their sexual practices of worship of their gods, to worship, basically to have sex in front of these idols. That's what their worship was. He says, and by doing that, the men who give into this he says, God will curse them. And God did. God sent a great plague into the camp of Israel, and thousands died. And that's what Moses is reminding these people. He's like, guys, remember, he says, when you go into the land, don't be tempted by these women. He says, don't keep them alive. You're supposed to destroy them all. He says, because they will tempt you in the same way. These same women were the ones who caused the plague in the camp of Israel through the council of Balaam. You go like, whoa. So what was, what was Balaam's sin? He was stumbling others. He intentionally stumbled others. And why? Well, start heading back towards Revelation. We're almost there. Uh, Go to Jude. It's right before Revelation. In Jude, there's only one chapter in Jude, so just go to verse 11 of the book of Jude. This is why. This is the error of Balaam. And it says, woe to them. Again, talking about um, apostates, talking about false teachers and things like that. He says, woe to them. For they have gone in the way of Cain, that's the murderer, and have greedily, they have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit. The love of money, right? That was the thing that set Balaam off. Now look at this. Look at what he did. Okay, there was the event. God warned him, don't do it. You know, this, you know, Balak's his message, send him away. Don't do it. And yet uh, he went anyway. His, his heart was perverse and he was going after it anyway because he, he wanted the money. And then God sends a warning through the donkey and then the angel of the Lord standing in the way with a drawn sword. Balaam falls on his face and I'll go back, I'll go back. He goes, no, you're going to go and you're going to say what I tell you to say. But he, it wasn't a good thing. This wasn't a pleasant meeting with Balaam and the Lord. And then uh, we see that in the end he went back and he was willing to sell the lives. Think of how many thousands of people died because of his greed. And what did he do? He tripped them up. He taught them to sin. He, taught, he stumbled them in sexual immorality. And that was his sin. And it was because of the love of money. And in the end, in the end, the, the angel of the Lord stood there with his sword, with his broadsword, drawn, ready to cut him down. And the prophet repented at that moment. But then he went back. And in the end, the Lord sent his people. Now the sword was held by uh, an Israelite man. And they saw Balaam, the son of Beor, and they cut him down with the sword. And he died. That was the end of Balaam. And you go like, I remember the first time when I read through the Bible, it was the very first time and I got to that. And that was the first like really disturbing thing for me. It's like, they killed Balaam? But he was a prophet. 
the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking to this church, to the church of Pergamos, because they have, they have this perversity within their church. They have this perversity in there. They have, they have gone a whoring after it, but it's a spiritual whoring. They, they have gone after these strange things. And it, it's, it's a love of money, but it's also, you know, Israel's part in this. You know, Balaam was the one, the doctrine of Balaam is, you know, the love of money and the stumbling others and sexual immorality. But remember, what was Israel's sin? Because, you know, you know, Balaam, he basically taught Balak how to put a stumbling block, but it was actually Israel who stumbled. And what did they do? They worshipped idols and they had sexual immorality. Right? They gave their hearts over to those things. Guys, where we live, where Satan's summer home is, right? Where we live, where there's a battle for the mind of not only ourselves, but also for our wives, for our husbands, for our children, Right? We have to be careful because there are so many prophets. There are so many who follow after the, the, the doctrine of Balaam. You could go on to TBN. You can go on to the internet. You can go on to YouTube. You can go on to all sorts of channels. And you will see people who, for the love of money, put a stumbling block in front of the church. There, there are so many people who say, no, 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 it's okay. There are literally... Uh, churches and whole denominations that say, hey, you know, it's okay if, if you're a homosexual. That's fine. We all just want to get along and God will love you right where you are. And it's like, you know what? God does love, does love a person, but he will judge sin, right? He will warn and he will try to restrain the madness of people. Yet if they continue on in that way, he will draw his double-edged sword and he will bring it to bear on us. And so it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God because these things are true. Balaam was a prophet. And yet he died by the edge of the sword of the armies of the Lord. Because, yo, he wouldn't just be satisfied in the Lord. Money, the, the love of that money meant more to him than the things of the Lord. Is there anything in our lives this evening that we can say mean more to us than the Lord? We need to be honest with ourselves. It's a dangerous thing. It's a great warning. They also, in verse 15, he says, Thus you have also those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now remember in Smyrna? In Smyrna, it said, Hey, you also, you, you hate the Nicolaitans like I do too. So in one church, it's like he's commending them. Hey, you hate these guys. Great. In this church, he's saying you actually have those who hold on to this doctrine. And that word for hold is like, it's like they're grasping, they're seizing it. It's like a, a position of authority and they're holding it in their fists clenched. So there are those in your church who are holding on to, to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans, it's basically conqueror of the people. It's, it's basically where the church runs you. It, it'd be like me saying, Stacy, you need to sell your car and give it to the church. That's the Lord's command for you in your life. You better do it. And she would have to do it if, if, if we were like that. Or, you know, we actually kind of joked about it uh, in the discipleship, the pastor's discipleship. And it's like, you know, these people, it's like if, you know, Bryson came up and I, I was displeased with the way Bryson was, I'd like slap him in the face and say, what's wrong with you? That's what the Nicolaitans were like. You know, it's basically it's like the clergy ruled over. But you know what? 
there's, there's, there are churches like that. They're called shepherding churches. They're shepherding movements. And it's like, you know, they, they, they basically tell the people, this is what you must do. This is the word of the Lord for you. You know, and, and it, it even goes so far as like people will literally say, people who, who kind of like follow along with this doctrine will literally say, like it'll, it'll be like a single guy walking up to a woman and say, the Lord has told me that you're to marry me. You have to marry me. Really? Serious? I'm not even joking. That I actually at WG, a guy came up to a girl at WG while I was there and was like, "The Lord told me you're supposed to marry me." And she was like, and she she came all confused because you know, she was a new believer and everything. And she's like, "Yo, what do we do? What, you know, do? Do I have to marry him?" And it's like, "No." <laughs> That's how you got Sarah. I guess it works out sometimes, but. You know, there's literally like that. But you know what? We think, of it, we think that's ridiculous, right? We think that's like, oh, whatever. Of course not. But you know what? There are times when we actually want the pastor to be a Nicolaitan. There are times when we want the pastor to tell us what to do. Just tell me what I'm supposed to do. You know, just tell me, hey, you know, if, if, I, if I come before you, you, you can make me do what's right. You can make me, you know, be, you know, walk in the ways of the Lord. You can make me do these things. It's like, no, I can't. I could slap you upside the face. I could tell you to do all these different things. But in the end, it's like, I can't change your heart. And yet there's a lot of people. There are a lot of people. You would be surprised on how many people. They, they literally, they want to put themselves into this subservient nature. They, they want the, the, they want the clergy to rule them. They, they, and we call it substitute Jesuses. They want you to become a substitute Jesus for them. And you know, people become very needy. And they, like, they, they, you know, they'll come with you with all of these different problems and all of these different things. And you'll say, did you pray about this yet? And they'll say, no. I wanted to find out what you said first. It's like, whoa. No, 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 no. No, don't do that. Please don't do that. These, this church had a lot of good things going for it. This church of Pergamos. But what they done, look at what the name means. Perverted marriage. Right? They took something that was pure and they joined in something that was impure. They took something that was holy and they defiled it with something else. Right? That's what the name Pergamos means. And this church... They had a lot of good things going for them. They did not deny the Lord Jesus Christ. They, did, they held on to their faith. They were faithful in what they were doing. So they took the church. They took the beauty of the church. They took the holiness of these things. And yet, they took these false doctrines, these doctrines that are wrong, that are perverted, that the Lord detests, and they mixed them in with their, with their teachings. It's where the church joins forces with the world. Now, I have to be careful on how I say this. The most dangerous thing for a church is to adopt the policies of the world. Think about this. Uh, right now, psychology, psychiatry, um, doctors, you've got all sorts of things. These are huge things in the church. Right? These are huge things in the church where it's like you have, you have Christians like you know, Christian counselors and things like that. You have all these different things. And in the end, a lot of these Christian counselors, now not all of them, some, some are actually really on the money and they'll, like, they'll teach you the word. Really what those are, they're, they're, they're biblical counselors. But a lot of times what people will do is 
like the church will literally, and, and I know there's a lot of pastors that have like their master's degree in psychology and things like that. And what they do is they take these principles, these doctrines of men, and they say, hey, you know what? This is the latest stuff. These are the latest teachings. You know, these are the latest scientific evidences. And, you know, these things, these are what, you know, you have to do. For you to have joy and peace in your life, you have to follow these teachings of men. And yet, in doing so, they discount the word of God. And they will literally contradict the word of God. So now you have to say, okay, well, what do I do with that? Because Jesus, you know, what, what did he say about the Pharisees? He says, you teach his doctrines, the traditions of man, and you use them to bypass the word of God. Remember the Pharisees were asking Jesus why his disciples don't wash their hands? And he's just like, you hypocrites. He says, You're, you hypocrites. And so there is this tendency. And there, you know, there's even churches that will literally play like ACDC and things like that, like for worship. They'll literally play secular music for their worship to draw people in. They'll have like the Doors playing, Hotel California, and things like that. That's their worship crew. They're, they're like literally singing secular songs. And it's like what they're trying to do, they're trying to be relevant in the bad way. They're trying to, they're trying to conform to the image of the world in order to draw people in. Right? And, and they, they'll, they'll take out the blood of Christ. They'll take out like, all of these things that would be offensive to you know, worldly people. And so they bring the people in. And then really what, they, what, they, what do they want? They want the money. Right? Because they're not there for the people's souls. They're not there to teach them. They're not there to say, hey, what you're doing is, great, is of great danger. Don't you see that the Lord has his sword drawn and he's ready to hit you with it? Stop. They're not there for that. They're just like, what they just want is like, hey, we don't care if the Lord kills you. Just stay here and keep tithing. We'll give you the money. We'll give you the music you like. We'll give you the messages you want to hear and all that kind of stuff. But hey, just keep giving the money. They, they followed after the doctrine of Balaam. And then, then other people will say, it's like, hey, you know, you're part of this church and you can't leave. Right? I've, had, I've had so many conversations. I, I remember when we left our church. They were really offended that we left. And you know, we, we said, we don't want to just disappear. We would love you to send us out and all that kind of stuff. Nothing doing. They, they cut us off of the email list and everything. Like that. Ah, it was gone. And it, you know, it, it, wasn't, it, it was an uncomfortable party. Because it's like they're very possessive of us. And it's like, how dare you go outside of us to another thing? And it was, it was hard. Because you know, we looked up to that person. Very much so. And, you know, it, it was very difficult. You know, it was one of those things where you feel very wounded over. But this church, this church had a lot of good things going. And yet, there was a madness in this church. Not everybody, but there was a madness in some of the people of this church. And they had drawn in these perversions and they had held on to them, and they wouldn't let go. And so, remember what happened to Balaam. He died by the sword. It came down on him. Now listen to this. Verse 16. Repent, or else I, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, will come to you quickly, and listen, I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Wow. You, I mean, think about it. This is all in the context of Balaam. Balaam was a prophet 
who heard the Lord would not receive what the Lord said, continued on in his madness. He had, you know, the Lord was right there. I mean, can you imagine standing in front of the angel of the Lord with a sword, angry at you, yelling at you? And yet still, after he'd gotten over the initial shock of that, had gone back home, thought about it a little bit more, the love of that money, like, like it, it overcame, his lust overcame his fear. And so he went back. And he was living like a prince in Midian. And he was living like a prince. He was high on the hog until that day when the armies of Israel came in and he was killed. And Jesus says to this church with the false doctrine with, uh, that was stumbled with the sexual immorality uh, with, that was stumbled with the worshiping idols that was uh, stumbled uh, with all of these things with, with the love of money as well. And he said, repent. He said, repent. He says, or I will come with you. I will come to you quickly. And I will fight against you with the sword of my mouth. And, that's, and again, that's not to all of them. But it is to some of them. He says, because in the same way that Balaam's way was perverted, when we, when we hear the word of the Lord and yet we don't turn from it, and we continue on it, and we allow the madness of it, even though the, the Lord will send us, he'll send us words all over the place. He'll give us divine appointments, and they'll be coming. And you, know, you might think that guy's a donkey who's saying it to you. You may not like him one bit, but nevertheless, it's like the Lord is restraining you through that guy. The Lord is restraining you through that woman, or whatever it may be. And you may be really, you know, I mean, Balaam wanted to cut that thing's head off. Think about it. When somebody rebukes you, you get upset, huh? And it's like, but it's like the Lord was doing it to restrain the madness, to, to like put in check the, the uncontrolled, the untempered lust. And he said, repent or else, he says, I will fight against those people like that with the sword of my mouth. But, now listen, this is what makes it personal to every single one of us. This is to me. He says, to he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Right? This word is, this word of doctrine is very important. It goes to every single one of us. You know, we have to hold on to this. We have to be careful. Remember Balaam. Remember the madness of the prophet. Remember what happened to him. Remember the end. And he says, listen. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And listen. To him who overcomes. See, now this is the great thing, the overcomer. Because these things don't have to be. Right? These things don't have to be. Even if this evening you found yourself following after the doctrine of Balaam, even after if, you hold, if you're holding on to the, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, or you want your pastor to be a Nicolaitan, whatever that may be, he says, you know what? Hold on a second. He says, he goes, I will fight against you. If you don't repent, he says, I will come quickly with my sword. He says, but if you do repent... He says, listen, to he who overcomes, listen, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. That is that thing. Now, remember, what did Balaam want? He wanted something that couldn't satisfy him. It's just like the, the iPads, the iTouches, the iPhones. It's like, you know, the newest guitar. It's like the greatest things, the, the best software, all these kind of things. And you, you, you lust after it, you lust after it, and then you finally get it, and then it doesn't satisfy. I don't care what Snickers says. It doesn't satisfy. It just makes you really thirsty. Right? And it's like you, you, like you long for it, you long for it, you long for it, and you finally get it. And it's like, yes, I've attained it. And now there's a better one. You go, it doesn't satisfy. 
And he says, yet, he says, listen, if you will put in check the madness of your flesh, he says, if you will repent from these things, then guess what? He says, I will give you to eat of the hidden manna. The manna is the thing that satisfies. Right? The children of Israel, when they're in that desert wandering for 40 years, their feet did not swell. They never hungered. They never had any kind of um, loss of like their hair or anything because of poor nutrition. It was everything they needed. It was everything they needed. And he says, if you overcome, I will give you the thing that which satisfies. Do you hear that? If you overcome that desire, whatever it is, to sin against the Lord that he's restraining you from, and he says, then I will give you that which satisfies and you can only get it from the Lord. And, listen to this, it's even better. See, that would be enough. Can you imagine if you were completely satisfied? If your soul, your spirit, your heart, your mind was completely satisfied? How incredible that would be? And yet that's not it. He says, and I will give you a white stone. And on the stone a new name written which no one knows except him who receives it. Okay, you think, a white stone? piece of quartz you can get those at the beach anytime you want what's the big deal about that you know who cares okay you have to understand this is another one of those uh, history lessons that you have to have the white stone let's say you went to court and uh you were in trouble and the um the jury's out they come and they'll literally there's a white stone and a black stone and they walk up and there'll be like a a, a table and if they set the black stone on there, you're guilty, condemned. And whatever your punishment is, you're getting it. If they set the white stone down, it says innocent. You have been justified. Jesus says, and I will give him, the overcomer, a white stone. I will declare him innocent, justified. And on the stone, a new name. Because you know what? Think about what our old names mean. You know, it's like they're everything who we are, right? They're everything who we are. All of my sin, all, if I went to a high school reunion, you know, I'd be known as the guy who, you know, lit the bathroom on fire. I'd be known as that guy, you know, who had a mullet, if you ask Heidi. I'd be like, you know, I wore the Sepultura shirt. I, I had all the black and things like that. I hung around the wrong people who smoked pot and did acid and things like that. I didn't have it myself, but I hung out with all those guys. You know, we were the reason why the tree in the quad died every year. Okay, it's like, yo, that's that's what my name represents to them. And yet, yo, when we get to heaven, the Lord will say, you know, it, it, as we overcome, he will give us a new stone and he'll give us a new name, a name that represents the righteousness that we have in him. The past is washed away. All of that, all of that things, all of the suffering, all of the pain, all of the sorrow, all of the sadness, all of the areas where we failed so miserably. He says, all of that will be washed away. All of it will be washed away. You will have a new name, and no one will ever say, who's that Brian Jameson guy? Oh, he was that guy who did this. They'll say, oh, that's that guy who trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's that guy who loved the Lord with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind, and he struggled sometimes, but gosh, he overcame. And remember, remember, he was that guy, the father said, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the father. It's like, Ah, that's what the new name represents. That's what this white stone represents. And guys, we have to turn away from the doctrine of Balaam. We have to turn away from the perversity. We cannot mix 
the world with the church. We cannot look at ourselves. We cannot judge ourselves. We cannot judge the things of the church through the eyes of the world because the world is perverted and it's under the sway of the devil. That's it. I hope you understand that. And, you know, Hollywood, baby, it's probably at least a summer home, if not the throne of Satan. Okay? It is the place that has the greatest reach in all of the world for perversity. And the reason why it has the greatest reach is because it comes right into every single one of us personally. It'll fall right in our laps. We can watch it on the internet. We can watch it on our phones. There's probably some watches. I think there are some watches that you can actually get TV on now as well. And, you know, we have them in our bedrooms. We have them in our kids' rooms. You know, we have them in our living rooms and our dens. You know, I mean, I've seen commercials literally where it's like, you know, a person is literally going from room to room. It's like in every single room of the house they have a TV and they have that new technology where you can, like, pause it and walk to the next room and it's on that screen as well. And so, they're like, they're all linked together. It's like, are you serious? Do you really? Like, you can't pause it for five seconds to go over there and get a glass of water and come back like you have to like you're that addicted that you have to literally walk through the rooms and like you know and like watching it it's like satan has such a hold he has such a hold on america and i i I realize that in voice of the martyrs we're not even on the page but you know what satan's here he is hard at work in this place lulling the church to sleep and battling for the minds of our children. And as we give into that, the Lord himself, he'll call us to repent. He'll, st- he'll, he'll try to uh, restrain the madness that we're following. And if not, he will come to us with the sword of his mouth, the broadsword, and he will fight against us. He will become our enemy. And he'll bring us down until we do repent. If we do, the overcomer is given great blessings. It's a heavy word, huh? It's a heavy word. The Church of Pergamos, perverted marriage. I don't know about you guys, but I want, I want a holy marriage. I want a holy church. I want a holy walk with my God. No defilement. None at all. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for the Church of Pergamos. Lord, we just pray that, um, Lord, I pray that if there's any uh, madness within me, Lord, if there's anything, any area, Lord, where you have spoken, Lord, and yet I refuse to hear, and I keep going back to it, Lord, I just pray that, um, Lord, that you would restrain me, Lord, that you would speak yet again. Lord, I pray that you would just be patient. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified in my life because that's really what I want. I don't care about the money. I don't care about notoriety or anything like that, Lord. I just, I want to be pleasing to you. Lord, may that be the prayer of our hearts. Lord, where we are more focused on you and what you want and what you love and what pleases you than of all the joys and all the pleasures this world has to offer. For in the end, I would rather have one glass of water in heaven than a feast in hell. Lord, I thank you for this word. May you minister it to my soul, dividing my heart and soul, bone and marrow. Lord, I pray that you would just do your work in my life. That I need never 
see you holding your double-edged sword in hand against me. May your word have its perfect work in my life and in the life of your church. In Jesus' name, amen.